semester, so <laughs> I'll just, you know, what's it going to hurt at this point? So, guilty pleasure, not proud of this, but my wife and I enjoy watching The Bachelor. Uh, judge me, if you will, it's appropriate, uh, but it's this wonderful example of how not to do life, uh, if you watch this show, and... Uh, <laughs> And I, I, it's a great, uh, I, I try to justify it by saying I use it as, as um, my foil in class to make illustrations. But um, love, according to The Bachelor, seems to be mostly this kind of passionate feeling, which they don't realize is mostly physical desire. Uh, and, and the show kind of manipulates it. It intensifies this passion uh, by sending people on these adventuresome dates. They're going to bungee jump and bond that way, or they're going to explore some exotic... Um, romantic city in Europe or South America. Um, the implicit message uh, in the show is something like novelty and adventure are the keys to lasting love. Novelty and adventure. That's what you need to make love last. Now, since uh, I started with a negative, I'll give you a positive. I'll contrast the bachelor view uh, with one of the most important rituals in uh, my marriage uh, with Lauren. I don't know how we fell into this, maybe we had some mentors, um, but somehow we got in a habit. Every week or two, we would go on a date, and our dinner date would revolve around the same four questions. We called it checking in. How are you doing in your relationship with God? How do you feel that we're doing? How are you feeling about the kids? And how are you feeling at work, or she's homeschooling? It's not bungee jumping or strolling through some Tuscan village, but over the years, it has contributed to a deep and intimate bond where we know the other and are known by the other. Yes, of course, we still enjoy adventure, but it's not what we look to for sustaining our relationship. The liturgy, I think, can be a little bit like that checking in practice. Week after week, year after year, following this familiar pattern of speaking and listening, an intimate routine that helps us to know God and to feel known by God. Rather than trying to sustain our relationship with God by chasing the next exciting trend or attempting to manufacture some spiritual high, we embrace the beauty and intimacy of the familiar. If adventure comes in our spiritual walk, that's wonderful, but if it doesn't, we don't panic. Because over time, we've built up something more sustaining. We love and we know we are loved through these kinds of practices. So as we begin, we'll be in Deuteronomy 30, verses 15 through 20. Matt and I are trying to uh, work on the rhythm of how we do this, and um, whether it's Milo Church or his Church of Christ roots, rhythm is not something that comes naturally. Uh, so we're still figuring uh, this out. That was a joke. It's one of those that's not working for me anymore. Um, so what we're going to try after, after our readings is to just give it 15, 20 seconds of silence um, so that you can allow the words that you've heard to, to maybe soak in a little bit before giving a, uh, what Matt has labeled micro-homilies uh, on these. Uh, so, after I read this, I'll pause, 
don't get anxious with the pause. Um, it's intentional. See, I have set before you today life and prosperity, death and adversity. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I am commanding you today by loving the Lord your God, walking in His ways, and observing His commandments, decrees, and ordinances, then you shall live and become numerous and the Lord your God will bless you in the land you are entering to possess. But if your heart turns away and you do not hear, but are led astray to bow down to other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall perish. You shall not live long in the land that you are crossing the Jordan to enter and possess. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessings and curses. Choose life so that you and your descendants may live, loving the Lord your God, obeying Him, and holding fast to Him. For that means life to you in length of days, so that you may live in the land that the Lord swore to give to your ancestors, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Moses, speaking on behalf of God, sets before them a choice. The choice. Life or death. If you choose to obey, you shall live. If your hearts turn away, you shall perish. Choose life. The Israelites here in Deuteronomy 30 stand on the brink of the promised land. They've been in the desert for 40 years. The generation who did not trust God has perished, and the next generation must choose. Life or death? Faithfulness or fickleness? Will they choose to enter into a sacred covenant with Yahweh and abide by the terms of that covenant? The old covenant, the Torah, was a gift of grace, an undeserved offer of life to the Israelites, the chance to draw near to God as he indwells the tabernacle, the chance to be guided in the ways that lead to flourishing. It's a gift. God chose them not because they're righteous or numerous in number, and although it was a gift, it nonetheless required obedience. Jesus holds out to the world now the new covenant made available by His blood. It is a gift of even greater grace, an undeserved offer of life. The chance not simply to be near to God in the tabernacle, but to be united with Christ through the Holy Spirit. This new covenant trains us to be the people we were created to be, reflecting the image of God in lives of love and faithfulness. 
And though this new covenant is a gift, it also requires obedience to the terms of the covenant. A choice, the choice, life or death, choose life. Josh's story about the, the little ritual that he and Lauren go through reminds us that there are rituals Christians have gone through. Um, just as they checked in with themselves on every date, Christians through the centuries have had a way of reminding themselves to check in, so to speak, with God, to check their own hearts through confession. So what we'd like to do this morning is to be honest with ourselves and honest before our God together. If you, would, if you would, read with me this prayer of confession. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed, by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry, and we humbly repent. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. Amen. The reading for the day, for the day from Psalms really complements what Josh read from Leviticus, the book of the law. It comes from Psalm 19, 119 rather. 119, as you might remember, is that really, really long one. What makes it interesting is that the entire psalm is a meditation on the law of God. Part of what makes it interesting is how many different ways it can talk about the law of God by using different words. Words like commands, precepts, statutes, decrees, but also a lot of words that usually are, we associate with travel. Words like paths and ways and directions. It's also interesting because it's a psalm that was created with particular attention. If you remember last week, the short psalm I read was an acrostic psalm. Each verse started with a different letter of the Hebrew alphabet, all 22 letters. Psalm 119 is built out of stanzas, eight-line stanzas. And in each stanza, every line begins with one letter, the same letter of the Hebrew alphabet for 22 different stanzas. So it's a double acrostic. Part of what that shows us about the ancient Hebrew people is their literal respect for the literal word of God because words are made of letters. And so this particular psalm is a particularly artful meditation on the Word of God as He shows us how to live. I'll read verses 33 through 40 this morning and then pause. Teach me, O Lord, the way of Your statutes, and I will observe it to the end. 
Give me understanding that I may keep your law and observe it with my whole heart. Lead me in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. Turn my heart to your decrees and not to selfish gain. Turn my eyes from looking at vanities. Give me life in your ways. Confirm to your servant your promise, which is for those who fear you. Turn away the disgrace that I dread, for your ordinances are good. See, I have longed for your precepts. In your righteousness, give me life. Time to be holy, speak not with thy Lord. Abide in him always, and be on his word. Make friends of God's children, help those who are weak. I'll be reading from 1 Corinthians 3, 1 through 9, from the New Century Version. Brothers and sisters, in the past, I could not talk to you as I talked to spiritual people. I had to talk to you as I would to people without the Spirit, babies in Christ. The teaching I gave you was like milk, not solid food, because you were not able to take solid food, and even now you are not ready. You still are not spiritual because there is jealousy and quarreling among you. And that shows that you are not spiritual. You're acting like people of the world. One of you says, I belong to Paul. And another one says, I belong to Apollos. When you say things like this, you're acting like people of the world. Is Apollos important? No. Is Paul important? No. We are only servants of God who helped you believe. Each one of us did the work God gave us to do. I planted the seed, and Apollos watered it, but God is the one who made it grow. So the one who plants is not important, and the one who waters is not important. Only God, who makes things grow, is important. The one who plants and the one who waters have the same purpose, and each will be rewarded for his own work. We are God's workers working together, and you are like God's farm, like God's house.
then from Matthew 5, beginning with verse 21, and this is the New Century Version. <clears throat> you have heard that our ancestors, our ancestors were told you must not commit or murder, commit murder. If you commit murder, you are subject to judgment. But I say if you are even angry with someone, you are subject to judgment. If you call someone an idiot, you are in danger of being brought before the court. And if you curse someone, you are in danger of the fires of hell. So if you are presenting a sacrifice at the altar in the temple and you suddenly remember that someone has something against you, leave your sacrifice there at the altar. Go and be reconciled to that person. Then come and offer the sacrifice to God. When you are on the way to court with your adversary, settle your differences quickly. Otherwise, your accuser may hand you over to the judge, who will hand you over to the officer, and you will be thrown into prison. And if that happens, you surely won't be free again until you have paid the last penny. You have heard the commandment that says you must not commit adultery. But I say that anyone who even looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So if your eye, even your good eye, causes you to lust, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of the body than your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your hand, even your stronger hand, causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. You have heard the law that says a man can divorce his wife by merely giving her a written notice of divorce. But I say that a man who divorces his wife, unless she has been unfaithful, causes her to commit adultery, and anyone who marries a divorced woman also commits adultery. You have also heard that our ancestors were told, you must not break your vows, you must carry out the vows you make to the Lord. But I say, do not make any vows. Do not say by heaven, because heaven is God's throne. And do not say by earth, because the earth is his footstool. And do not say by Jerusalem, for Jerusalem is the city of the great king. Do not even say by my head, for you can't turn one hair white or black. Just say a simple yes, I will, or no, I won't. Anything beyond this is from the evil one. We um, turn first to the First Corinthians reading. I don't know about you all, but I love the way Kathy read that. It's kind of how uh, I think maybe we should hear Paul. Uh, her, you could hear her mom voice coming out in that. The, this combination of, I'm irritated with you, you should know better, but I still love you. Uh, what a great way to hear uh, Paul speaking to his, uh, to his children, in a sense. Uh, and as he tells them uh, that they're being petty uh, by being divided over which leader they prefer based on what seems to be a preference for their rhetorical skill, he says, one plants, another waters, but it's only God who gives the growth. This reading, in particular, hit home for me this week. 
as a teacher, whether here or at Lipscomb, I can get really discouraged. I really try to faithfully plant seeds or water the soil or till the earth, but I'm sometimes haunted by despair because of the reality spoken of in this passage. I cannot make anything grow. And sometimes I can, can't tell if my labors are doing any lasting good. I know I'm not alone in this feeling, whether you're a teacher or not. I know many of you have faithfully prayed for a loved one or for resolution to some painful situation, and you are all too aware that you cannot make it change, nor can you even tell if your labor is in vain. You might minister to the poor or to the addict, and yet you feel so helpless to make real, lasting difference. There is this temptation to just throw in the towel. Or, if not that, to try to latch on to whatever new trend is sweeping through the megachurches. And while it is true that there may come a point where it's time to move on and throw in the towel, sometimes... Paul moved on from the synagogues or Jesus would leave a city. And while it's true that sometimes what's trending might be valuable and represents a movement of the Spirit, I suspect that it's much more often the case that we're called to simply persevere in our good works, to err on the side of hope rather than on the side of despair. To follow our Lord Jesus, who modeled for us the beauty that can radiate from unglamorous, sometimes unappreciated, often menial acts of servant-hearted compassion. I also suspect that our own mundane or seemingly mundane service might be beautiful to God when offered to Him as a sacrifice of praise. And I further suspect that our God, who, as Mary saying, lifts up the lowly, that our God may do some of his most important work through what feels like our lowliest and maybe our most unproductive forms of service to him. Now my thoughts will be on Matthew 5. As Jesus um, is calling his disciples to what we might think of as an inside-out kind of integrity. From the inside, from our heart, flows out into the way we live our lives. So he says, it's not merely avoiding adultery, but lust. Not merely do not murder, but avoiding those kind of, that kind of sinful anger which shows up in wrath or disdain or hatred. Don't merely avoid swearing in the Lord's name, but in this inside-out kind of integrity, avoid all attempts to deceive, manipulate, and promote untruths. Don't merely follow the protocol for how to go through a divorce, but have a rugged commitment to one's spouse where you don't give up unless one spouse's behavior has shattered that sacred covenant, perhaps through adultery 
or as I think is implied through other covenant-shattering acts like physical or sexual abuse. What I think is probably a very Church of Christ temptation as we listen to Jesus' teaching here is to turn, ironically, Jesus' teaching, which he's focusing on the uh, the kind of inside-out integrity. He's focusing on living according to the principle that um, instead of taking seriously this focus on the principle, we put all our focus on legalistically enforcing the illustrations Jesus is laying out. So, as he's calling people to honor their marriage, we might get caught up on what are the appropriate grounds for divorce, which is not an illegitimate question, but it might be missing what Jesus is after. Or when uh, Jesus is trying to teach them about dealing appropriately with wrath and anger, we might get sidetracked and think, are there other words besides fool that are off limits for Christians to use? We should come up with a list of those words so that we avoid using them. (laughs) Never mind that Jesus, about 15 chapters later, will indeed call someone a fool. Jesus is not so legalistically bound to his own words here because I think he's getting at the issue of this inside-out integrity. Certainly my point is not anything goes, Jesus is just exaggerating, we don't have to take this stuff seriously, let's sin so that grace may abound. No, we must attend to Jesus' words here with the utmost seriousness. And I think if we are listening well, we see that he's not just giving us an updated set of rules or um, maybe just adding more rules to, uh, to the present list. Instead, I believe he's il- illustrating how essential it is that we practice integrity of heart and mind and motive. Our conduct shouldn't only follow the explicit rules, but should always be informed by the principle behind the rules. So rather than get, getting caught up in whether it's okay to swear an oath in court when Jesus says, do not swear, We focus more on the principle in Jesus' example. How is it in every area of my life that I might practice being trustworthy and avoid deception? This is what it looks like to choose life, to embrace this new covenant where we might live as the people we were meant to be. Kent, you'll lead us in the... Next verse. Take time to be holy. Let him be thy guide. And run not before him. Whatever be time. In joy or in So Josh asked me to um, lead the Apostles' Creed, but before that to read a a brief chapter. Don't ever do this to an English teacher. There's no author. 
Ben Myers. Ben Myers. <laughs> it's a little devotional book on the Apostles' Creed. The intention being that we're maybe not familiar with the Creed and you think, are we just being Catholic here? No. As we've looked through, this, is, this has got a tradition that runs for centuries and centuries, and it's cross-denominational. But it helps to know what we're confessing rather than just confessing. So we're going line by line kind of through this devotional. So uh, this little chapter, when you start hearing it, the author takes issue, a little bit of strong issues, with one of our culture's treasured ceremonies or rituals, which is the wedding ceremony. Um, As I read this, the irony was not lost on me that last weekend I spent four days in wedding planning with my son and his fiance, and as the groom's mother, my job is to go, (laughs) sounds great, love it. Um, But uh, fortunately for me, my my son's fiance is an Episcopal priest, so their, their actual wedding ceremony will be all liturgy. Uh, I'm having to prepare my Church of Christ relatives for <laughs> what's going to be a very, very high church ceremony. But it was, it was funny that I'm, I'm reading this person who takes such strong issue with some of what our culture is doing. But I would urge you to listen to why he's making the contrast and what he is um, really praising as he moves through this little chapter. The first word is per I. The first word is perhaps the strangest part of the whole Apostles' Creed. I. Who is this I whose voice is speaking in the Creed? I've been to wedding ceremonies where the couple write their own vows. It is a recent custom that reflects wider cultural changes. In the past, One of the things that made a wedding special was the fact that you got to say exactly the same words that everybody else said. When a couple said their vows, they weren't just expressing their own feelings. They didn't use their own words. They used the same words that their parents and their ancestors had spoken, and they made those words their own. But today, we are skeptical about the past. We are skeptical about anything that is merely handed down to us. We assume that the truest thing we could ever say would be something we had made up ourselves. In the same way, Christians today are often suspicious of creeds. Many churches are more comfortable with mission statements rather than creeds. The thing about a mission statement is you always get to make it up for yourself. It's like writing your own wedding vows. But here's the paradox. It is the individualized confession, like the personalized wedding vow, that ends up sounding like an echo of the wider society. What could be more conformist than expressing your feelings of love through your own specially crafted wedding vow? The wedding is a grand occasion, so you want to make it special. But the more you try to personalize it, the more it degenerates into triviality and cliché. The ceremonial quality evaporates. 
Or again, what could be more conformist than a mission statement? Every company has one. And although each one is unique, they all sound eerily similar, as if all the companies in the world were out to achieve the same blandly generic aims. I think there is a similar dynamic at work in many churches today. The harder they try to be special and unique, the more they seem exactly like everybody else. By contrast, to confess the creed is to take up a countercultural stance. When we say the creed, we are not just expressing our own views or our own priorities. We are joining our voices to a great communal voice that calls out across the centuries from every tribe and tongue. We locate ourselves as part of that community that transcends time and place. That gives us a critical distance from our own time and place. If our voices are still echoes, they are now echoing from something beyond our own cultural moment. I believe. Who is the I that speaks when we make that confession? It is the body of Christ. It is a community stretched out across history, terrible as an army with banners. The whole company of Christ's followers goes down into the waters of baptism, crying out the threefold, I believe. In baptism, nobody is invited to come up with their own personal statement of belief. All are invited to be immersed into a reality beyond themselves and to join their individual voices to a communal voice that transcends them all. The truest and most important things we can ever say are not individual words, but communal words. Most of the words of my life are trivial and fleeting. They fall from my lips and drift away like dead leaves. But in the creed, I am invited to say true words. In confessing the faith of the church, I allow my own individual I to become part of the I of the body of Christ. It is then that I am saying something of deep and lasting importance. It is then that my words have roots. So if you would say with me, thinking of the power of this communal speech, the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. 
He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Now let us pray together as he taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. So we have a few minutes this morning before we close with the collect. Um, share together whatever you might want to share, to ask questions or to, to say whatever. Those are beautiful kids. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I like your mother. Yeah. <laughs> nice answer. <laughs> I, I like the thing that Josh start off with that, that, that example of checking in with his with his wife tying into the, the notion of sort of a disciplined accountability because that's something that, that's all too easy for me to skip I know in my life um, to match that with God's word showing us the, the way to life as opposed to the way to death um, it all kind of tied together for me um, for example if those of you who know me know that if you ask me about work I'll rant pretty quick. It's really easy for me to rant about my job. Um, but I was convicted today that by what was read from the Corinthians. You know, Paul tells them, you can't act like that and be considered mature Christians. You, you can't whine and complain. You can't hate. You can't lust. You can't, you can't be normal if you're born of the Spirit. You've got to get, you've got to get over that. And so for me, that... That notion of confession and the communal confession that we, we pray sort of struck home with me. That, you know, I kind of need to admit or confess that that's an issue that I, that I know I have. If you've talked to me about work, you know it happens. Um, and so this is my confession. I don't, I don't want to do that, but I'm prone to do it anyway. I'm weak. But that's why Christians need their brothers and sisters to help us. To help us. Um, and it was I was reminded today, and those kids remind me. You know when, how when we see kids trying to do something grown up, and they mess it up, and we are just delighted. Like when they, for example, when they try to shake hands, when they learn how to shake hands, or when they try to dress themselves to look for church. I, th- I think God's kind of like that sometimes. We're we're gonna mess it up. When we try, we're going to be clumsy and awkward. Um, but I'm persuaded today by the example of those children and thinking about how God is our Father. That it's okay to be awkward and clumsy. He probably is delighted that we try. Um, just like He's disappointed when we forget who we're supposed to be. So that's how the, the, the liturgy works for me this morning. That's, that's how what we've done this morning. Sort of bring some things together. In those moments of silence we have to meditate, it, it, things connect for me.
Now that's just me. I'm hoping, we hope, that something similar may be happening for you. Um, I really like that chapter that you read before doing this. Chapter. I had just been involved in a wedding recently, too, where there was personal vows and then the um, reciting of traditional vows. And it hit both areas with exactly what, what is lacking in just the personal, everything being personal. And then but I, I just thought the chapter was very well done before we did this. I really enjoyed uh, Kathy reading also the first Corinthians three one through nine, and just hearing Josh talk about his own so openly struggles, and it it just helps me realize that you do things and you feel good about what you're doing, and you don't be a, you're not affirmed. I mean, I there are times where. I'm so proud of myself. I was unselfish. <laughs> for what, you know? And then you don't hear anything about it, and then you kind of take that. I can take that against whatever I've done. But it's that, and I wrote it down, it's to err on the side of hope and not despair. And I just think that's something I important to me. Well, it's about time for us to go. Let me pray this prayer, this collect over us as a way to finish off. O oh God, the strength of all who put their trust in You, mercifully accept our prayers, and because in our weakness we can do nothing good without You, give us the help of Your grace, that in keeping Your commandments we may please You both in will and deed, through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with You and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Amen. One peace. <laughs> she's going out here with you. She's going out here with you.